Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today my friend Heather Scriba. A few months ago, Heather was out here in Boise, Idaho, and we were taking part in a filming project, which I'm sure you'll hear about in due time. And in between filming sessions, I said, Heather, hey, let's go have a conversation for my podcast. And so we went downstairs and we had a conversation. Now, the audio on this is going to be a little rougher because... Well, it's hard to explain, but the setup was different. I had just my iPhone and some sort of external microphone connected to my uh, iPhone. And so the the quality is better than just simply having an iPhone microphone, but it's not as good as what you're hearing right now in my nice, polished, sure microphone, my audio setup here in my basement. So the audio is going to be a little rougher. Also, this conversation that I had with Heather is also on my YouTube channel. So uh, I know most of you don't... Um, do my YouTube, don't pay attention to my YouTube channel. Most people are either kind of podcast only or YouTube only. And so that's why I'm trying to release these um, conversations both on my YouTube channel and in the podcast. So if you want to get a visual of our conversations, you can go to go to my YouTube channel, just press and sprinkle punch in press and sprinkle on YouTube and you'll get right to it. And the title of this is transgender and the gospel. If you want to support this show, you can do so through my Patreon account. Patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. The info is in the show notes. Also, I, I, if you want to support me through Venmo, you can do that as well. People have been asking me how they can support me. People have been asking me about um, if, you know, if I have a Venmo account, it's super easy to uh, kick over some cash and thankfulness for the ministry that I'm doing here. So if that's you and you'd like to support me, you can go to uh, my Venmo account. The, the um, info is in the show notes. All right, let's get to know Heather Scriba. You guys are going to love this conversation. She's she's super raw, super authentic, and super gospel-centered. All right, welcome to the show, Heather Scriba. YouTube channel again. I'm here with my friend Heather Scriba. Heather, thanks so much for being live. Well, not live, but it's recorded on my YouTube channel. is just called Press and Sprinkle, but Theology in a Raw is a podcast that I run as well. So thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, the show. To it. Yeah. <laughs> um, we actually never met. We've got uh, several mutual friends, mm-hmm. and we've corresponded on email a little bit. And then you came out to be part of this filming project and. I would just love for you to tell your story and then we can, um, yeah, I'm sure that's going to spark a bunch of questions and we can kind of follow up from there. So tell us who Heather Scriba is. Yeah. So my story, um, I grew up in like a Christian home, but my mom was Methodist and my dad was Catholic. Um, and so even just between those two like faith denominations, like I got a lot of conflicting messages about like who God is, like what does faith mean? even just like salvation, like there's two fundamentally different views on salvation between Mm -hmm. Methodists and Catholics. And so I was just really confused about like what it meant to be a Christian. Um, And my parents got divorced when I was in second grade. And that led to a lot of like family dynamics being really rough. Like my, my mom was emotionally unavailable and my dad was physically and emotionally and verbally abusive. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it led me to like project all of that negative, the negative relationships with my parents onto God too. So like my mom is absent, therefore God is absent. My dad's like abusive and abrasive and therefore God is too. 
And so, so, so both parents, mm-hmm. not just the father represent yeah. dad, but both mother and father shape yeah. your view of God. Yeah, well, if you think about it, like God the Father, but then there's the comfort of the Holy Spirit, right. and that's the more mothering, nurturing role. Right. And so I missed out on both of those as a kid. And so my view of God was just really, really distorted. Um, but it led me to like not want anything to do with God as a kid. Like I would go to youth group just to keep my parents happy. Um, I would go to church on Sundays to avoid arguments later. Um, but it was never something that I wanted anything to do with. Um, and that continued all throughout like middle school and high school. Like I went through the motions, but I was really turned off to God. Like I didn't want anything to do with him. And I quite frankly just wanted to go to college and start over. Like I wanted to be myself and just like abandon all of this like negative baggage. Um, because like my dad's view of like women and femininity was really narrow and I just could not meet his expectations of what that was supposed to be like. Like he thought women needed to, um, like have long hair, like to wear dresses, wear makeup. Um, and I like wore camouflage and like played with my brother's GI Joes. And so we just had like two fundamentally different perspectives and experiences. And when we would have like tension about it, um, he would like look at me and say like, I always wish that I had a daddy's girl as a daughter. Mm-hmm. And what that communicated to my like eight year old heart was like, I'm not the daughter that my dad wants. Like being around my femininity or my version of feminine femininity brings my dad pain. Like it's, it's defective. It's not good enough. Um, and I internalized that like as my identity, as my value. So like that caused me to develop a lot of social anxiety, a lot of insecurity, a ton of self-hatred. Um, and so by the time that I got like turned 18 and was ready to go to school, I was ready to be out. Like I just needed a clean start. Um, so when I got to college, um, I went to University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and I was ready to like just really like turn away from any like traditional or conservative like idea from my background and instead like I wanted to take a women's studies course and expose myself to other like just other worldviews because like I grew up in small town northern Michigan like where everybody knows everybody yeah so like just what's out there is really limited yeah (laughs) um so but on my first day of classes like Jesus interrupted my story as he often does and um there was a group of people from a campus ministry handing out um surveys and they were basically saying like hey fill out a survey and you get a free discount card and as a now poor college student I thought why not (laughs) so like the questions on the survey were really simple it was like do you want a personal relationship with God? Are you interested in a Bible study and maybe one more? Um, And I think I checked like maybe or like sort of interested, but very noncommittal answers. Um, But that was enough for them to start reaching out to me. And after like six weeks of making excuses for why I couldn't go to like their Bible study and like campus gatherings, um, I finally like, I just didn't have any more excuses. So I thought, okay, I'll go once and then that'll get them off my back. Like they'll stop calling me every week. Um, but at the, uh, like all campus gathering that I went to, the message was called the music of the gospel. And the premise of it was if we're dancing without music, it's exhausting. Like there's no joy in it. It's like void of all, devoid of all like things that are life giving. But if you hear the music of the gospel, like things that we normally call religious actually become life-giving and enjoyable. And it's something that you want to invite other people into. Um, and it, it's something that like, like 
builds your faith and builds your joy and increases your quality of life instead of like something that is just a meaningless act. Mm -hmm. Um, and I realized that these people had an experience of God that I had never had before and whatever the different thing was that they had, I wanted that version of God, not the version that I knew growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, so that propelled me to give my life to Jesus and realize that like there is kindness there. There is kindness in the heart of God. And like, I want to, I want to experience that like personal, like relationship with God that makes me want to dance to the music of the gospel. Um, and after I like became a Christian and started pursuing God and pursuing faith, like I started asking a lot of those apologetic questions that you asked, like, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Um, questions about like science and faith and how can those things coexist? Like, are dinosaurs real? How old is the earth? Just those big <laughs> All fun ones. <laughs> yeah, you know, and like the, the woman who was discipling me like just was so patient. <laughs> it was really sweet of her. She like brought out Josh McDowell's like evidence that demands a verdict and we went through it together. <laughs> um, but then I was also asking these heart level questions of like, why does God let suffering happen to people? Like, why did my, like, upbringing, why did he let that be so hard? Like, why did I feel so much self-hatred and anxiety and insecurity? Like, these questions that are more personal and that I had used my pain to distance myself from God. But now that I was in a relationship and, like, um, following after him, like, we began peeling back those layers, um, and then one of the areas, like, as I was processing through all these things, one of the areas that I got really stuck was about, like, LGBT issues in the Bible. In my mind, I was thinking, like, how could a loving God say that two people loving each other is bad? Like, that just felt really arbitrary. Like, if he's God, like, he could have changed it. He could still change his mind, maybe. Like, I just couldn't grasp, like, what was so bad about it or what was wrong about it. Um, and through like being so stuck on like I was stuck on it for months probably or probably years even um I realized like I had personal stake in this game um like I was asked I was so stuck on this because it shed light on the fact that like I am holding out on the fact that like I really hope I can date a woman someday and being in a more like progressive setting and like uh like at at a university like I started to like get vocabulary to talk about like oh like I'm attracted to women like the church calls that same-sex attraction this university just like calls it like being gay or being lesbian or whatever like the terminology is like there's more flexibility there and it gave me vocab to talk about it that the church hadn't equipped me with um and like having language is really empowering. And so I, I finally felt like, oh, there's a word for this. So therefore like someone else had to have struggled with this before. Um, and so as I began opening up to like my Christian community about it, like they were very much like, okay with me wrestling with it, like on a head level, like you can wrestle with big picture theology of like, what does God say about LGBT stuff in the Bible? But the second it becomes personal and you think about like, can I Heather date a woman? they shut that down immediately and they're like, we're not comfortable with this. Like God says, no, like we'll pray about it. We'll pray for you. But like, there's no freedom to wrestle on a personal level. You can wrestle theologically, but not on a personal level. And would you say that lack of freedom was really unhelpful, not having that space? I mean, totally unhelpful. <laughs> like there, like the was, isn't like the name, like Jacob or Israel, something means to wrestle with yeah. God. And yeah. so it's like, that's like fundamentally built into like, 
what it means to be in relationship with him. And they, like that was just being quenched. And so, yeah, it was super unhelpful. Um, I, uh, okay. <laughs> um, like, so because I wasn't able to address those questions in my like faith community, mm-hmm. it's like, I'm going to ask those questions anyway. So I'll just go somewhere else. It's like, I'm not getting answers from, um, like from the people that I want to get answers from. So I began talking to some just like friends that I had made in classes at work um, just opening up like, hey, like, I kind of think I might be attracted to women. And the response that I got was the complete opposite. Like they were excited. They're like, yes, like we get to be part of your coming out story. Like we get to be part of this like new step in your life and you becoming authentically you. Um, And I was like, wow, like that is way more of the reaction that I was hoping for. Just even like the acceptance of like, this is not something like shameful. Right. Like I I didn't want to be even regard, like I would never ask someone to change their theology just to make me feel better, but to engage me in dialogue about it is so freeing. And to not even have that with my faith community, like just like piles shame onto it. Yeah, yeah, almost two extreme mm-hmm. communities here. One's yeah. just completely affirming, you know, no wrestling at all, just mm-hmm. we can't wait till you come out. The other one, no freedom to, to yeah. genuinely wrestle. What do you think a healthy, maybe, I don't want to say middle ground, but kind of, you know, mm-hmm. is, there, is there, what would it look like for a Christian community who maybe does believe in a traditional sexual ethic, still provide healthy space for somebody to wrestle so that you're not just like, completely turned off by that community you're just gonna go find some other place to rest yeah i think like christians often feel like theology needs to be weaponized Mm. to keep someone's behavior in place and like on the right track and so like if people hadn't led with theology i think it would have communicated something totally different like because for me even like even if i'm like i knew what most of their perspectives were but um to if if they even just switched their response and said wow like i know that's a hard thing to like process as a christian like are you okay Mm -hmm. like that's asking if someone is okay isn't sacrificing any of your beliefs or values it's caring for someone like just think about the good the story of the good samaritan like they crossed over the road to check on the person who was wounding like wounded like you have to like overcome those like barriers and like the discomfort and like even the inconvenience of loving people like overcome that to make people feel safe um and it's uncomfortable yeah and it's awkward and it's messy and quite frankly like i mean most of the time i don't want to do that <laughs> like, like let me stay in my comfortable little box but like that doesn't like when people's hearts are on the line it's worth it. Yeah. Totally. So. so, okay. So you wrestled with your sexuality, uh, in college. Um, when did that turn into a wrestling with your gender identity? Yeah. Shortly after? Or? It was my senior year of college. So I, as I, I stayed like in the, well, I came out to like Christian friends as like same sex attracted. Cause that's like yeah. the safe word to use. <laughs> but I never, I thought that like just coming out as that would be enough. Like letting people know, like, this is my experience. And if you're going to judge me, like maybe you're not someone I want in my life anyway. So I tried to ride that tension for a while. Um, but my se- summer before my senior year of college, my mental health was declining a lot. Like I was really struggling with anxiety and depression. Um, 
I had been on antidepressants for a little bit and they stopped working and I cycled through like three or four different ones and they still like, I just kept responding poorly to all of them. Um, and so I finally was like, I can't do this anymore. Like I can't live this in this tension because it is taking a toll on my ability to like show up to life. I was calling into work multiple times a week. Um, I was really struggling to even get out of bed and just the, the, any joy that I had in life was just quenched because this, this feeling of like, I just need to come out and like, I, it felt like I was being smothered by all, how much I was thinking about and perseverating on my sexuality mm. and my gender. And so the summer before my um, senior year of college, I came out as gay for about three months and like that eased up a little bit of the tension, but it wasn't quite the right fit. Like something about it was like, this is nice, but like there's more to it than what I'm, than like what I should be experiencing. Like this isn't quite right. Um, and in a lot of, just in like growing as a believer and processing through, and just like maturing and processing through a lot of like issues from my childhood, um, I was working on going through a lot of my resentments mm -hmm. and I realized like I resented my parents a lot. I resented myself a lot, but I also resented God a lot. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my resentments that came up were about sexuality. Mm -hmm. But in taking that like moral inventory, I realized, Oh, like there's a lot here about my gender too. Like I'm really mad at God that he made me a woman wow. and I don't know what to do with that. And that, but like realizing that made me have a little bit more like, I feel a little bit more empowered of like, okay, at least I have a category for this now. Um, but in those conversations about gender, again, like the church or my faith community was not a safe place for that. So as I opened up to like my other friends, uh, their, like, their response was, you don't have to live with this inner tension that's causing you to feel so like anxious and depressed and um on the, like on the verge of suicidal like you don't have like you deserve better than that and so I decided that um my senior year of college I was going to introduce myself by a new name so I started going by Jamie um I started using male pronouns and I really switched my wardrobe like before that summer I had this last dramatic shift towards like trying to be feminine like I was trying to wear makeup and jewelry and dresses and it was just <laughs> how'd that go <laughs> not well <laughs> it just felt like really awkward I was like I'm looking at myself and I just constantly am so uncomfortable in my body and like these clothes are just making it worse um so the shift after I started, like after I came out in my classes, like I was thinking, I can introduce myself here. The semester is four months long. If this doesn't go how I'm assuming it will go, like I'm probably never going to see the people in my class again. So like it, it felt like a good trial period for it. Not that I made the decision lightly, but just knowing that I had an out, if I think made the weight of the decision a lot less. Yeah. Did, did you, did people accept you, I mean, in your environment as Jamie or was it, did you feel any kind of awkward responses mm -hmm. or, you know? It depended on the class. Like I was taking a lot of, um, it was my senior year. So I was in a lot of upper level psych and sociology classes. So when I'm taking classes like the sociology of gender, they're like you, part of the protocol is introducing yourself and saying your preferred pronouns. Okay. So the classes that were more like progressive for lack of a better word created a space where like I could 
like I could experiment with that or I could like come out. And even though like, I still like, I was really, I wasn't changing that much permanently at that point, but it still was a space where that was respected. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then how long after did you begin uh, transitioning? Yeah. Um, It took me, well, the, when I started changing my name, like the relief that I felt like it wasn't like instantaneous, but it was really quick. Okay. Like it took maybe a month for me to start feeling like confident and comfortable and to notice like I'm actually like engaging people again. Like I'm laughing and having fun and being silly and playful. And like these parts of my personality are coming out that I thought were like dead, honestly. You say that's just, just the name change. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's super helpful for someone who doesn't have the experience to understand. Because oftentimes people who don't wrestle with gender dysphoria who are perfectly fine with you know, my, my male name and being a male, but like to understand somebody like in your, in your case, so much like anxiety and just mm-hmm. depression and all this stuff leading up to it. And then finding that relief mm-hmm. from the name. And then if a Christian comes along, or not just a Christian, but if somebody comes along and refuses to use that name, it's almost like a, another punch in the gut, right? Yeah. It's all, it's like you're taking away something that has brought me relief. Right, right or wrong, you know, whatever you think about the name thing, like that, that's the, the feeling I imagine yeah. it's like you're taking away something that's finally brought me mm-hmm. some relief. Yeah, and for me, it was just this white noise in the background. Like when I was going by Heather and female pronouns and trying to like look feminine, like there was this constant white noise of this isn't right. I'm not doing this right. This feels wrong. Like mm-hmm. uh, like how do I make myself feel okay about this? And it's just this narrative that plays in the background. And it was like like. It's like someone turned off the power of the white noise, like it muted it when I finally started switching like my name and pronouns, um, or even just turn the volume down a little bit because it wasn't gone. But then the second like that gets questioned or I have to like make a choice about what bathroom I was going to use, like the white noise went back up of like, am I going to be found out? Like, are they going to, is someone going to tell me I'm in the wrong bathroom? Am I going to get called ma'am instead of sir? And it's just this constant like internal tornado that does not stop. I've heard from, I think every single trans person I've talked to that go like the whole (laughs) turmoil that they go through when they have to go to the bathroom in public, just the, which one do I go and what's going to happen? And just the anxiety of yeah. having to use the bathroom in public is just constant. Yeah. And there's the argument that it's like for like, even just the thought that it would be for like other people's safety is just so baffling to me because it's like, I'm more worried about yeah. this and I'm the one who's more at risk as like a, tr- right. like as a trans guy than anybody else in this bathroom. Yeah. And like, I just honestly just really just want to use the bathroom. Like it's, <laughs> it's not that deep, but we're making it like it's yeah. been made into this thing. Like wars are waged in the bathrooms. Does it make you, does it make you feel like a monster? I mean, it's like, wait, what do you think I'm going to harm somebody or something? Is that way when they use that kind of rhetoric? I mean, is that, I wouldn't say monster. It more of like, just made me feel really on edge. Like I like was on guard all the time. Like I had to make sure that like I would avoid eye contact with people because maybe that would make them pay more attention to me or just how can I fly under the radar as much as possible and just like go to the bathroom and then be done and like go on with my life. (laughs) But like no one should have to think about it that much. What about, so I, I would say the people, at least the more thoughtful people I know when they, when they raise concerns about the, the mm-hmm. bathroom thing, it's not even really they're concerned as much, at least the ones I, I would talk to you about a, a trans person. Mm-hmm. 
using a bathroom that matches your gender. Um, it's more somebody else, some straight cisgender pervert taking advantage of that, you know. Um, and, I, and, I, and I guess, yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> it, it just, like, grieves me that that is a segue for, like, talking about, like, perverts or pedophilia or anything. Like, yeah. those are two totally different conversations. Like, the, like, someone who is going to like do anything harmful or in a bathroom is going to do that regardless yeah. of whether or not like trans people are allowed to use okay. the bathroom that they want. Like that motive already exists. And if someone is motivated enough to act on that, like the gender or like the, like the sign on a bathroom is not going to stop them. That's good. That's good. So. Okay. So you socially transition mm -hmm. and then you start after that. How long after when you started taking hormones? It was, so I, classes started September. It was December that I finally got on hormones. Okay. Um, it, in that time, I was like really hoping that God would like close doors if I wasn't supposed to be doing it. But it took six weeks to make a doctor's appointment when in reality it should have taken months. Mm. Um, and so I started hormones that December and I was on them for a, probably like two years total. Mm -hmm. um, but in the first few months, like my voice started dropping, like my body fat redistributed. Mm -hmm. So like my face got a little bit elongated and like, um, my like muscle mass shifted. So it just like kind of became more and more like, like appearing more and more like a cisgender guy to the point where I could pass, mm -hmm. which means to have people perceive me as the gender I want them to. So like I was trying to look masculine or I was identifying as, as a transgender guy and people were perceiving me as such. Yeah. And so I was passing and that was really when I felt like things were like, I was like, this is good. Like I, this is just alleviating so much of that distress. Like, and I can find, like, I just saw so many of the initial, like good changes continue to magnify as I began to look more and more masculine. Okay. So then I pursued changing my name legally and I changed my gender marker legally. Like I did, I did all the things that you like typically do to fully socially transition. Okay. And that, was that satisfying? I mean, did it scratch the itch that you felt like needed to be scratched? In the beginning. Yeah. Like it, it, it ended up, obviously it ended up not sticking cause I'm here as Heather, but <laughs> like in the beginning, yeah, I think like I was just, there was so much going on. Like I had this community that loved me and championed me. Like, I found a place to belong. I found my identity and there, like, I felt so much freedom from shame because like in the LGBT community, there's no shame for being transgender. It's celebrated. So like the big things that like I was looking for answers on, like, am I loved? Am I accepted? Is the way that I'm made good? Like those core questions were being answered. Um, and so, uh, I, in, with the momentum that I had, I was thinking like, this has all been so awesome. Like, the last thing that I need to do to like alleviate this dysphoria that I'm feeling is to have top surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, to so often for like trans guys, like that is, that is the thing that like, like that is the thing that like helps you like fix, not fix your dysphoria. That's not a good use of language, but like helps you alleviate your dysphoria more mm -hmm. permanently. Like, because it's like the most permanent change on your body. Most trans guys that I talk to say that, their, their chest is kind of the, they would even describe like the source of their dysphoria yeah. almost, you know? Yeah. Cause I was binding, um, up until then, up until I had surgery, okay. but there was always like this awkwardness with it of like, is the shirt that I'm wearing showing that I'm binding? Like, are there telltale signs that I am transgender? Um, and they're also just uncomfortable. Like there's just a lot, there's just so many factors that like, 
the binding versus like having top surgery, like the difference in the amount of dysphoria it alleviates is significant. So after you've had top surgery, what was, tell us about the months after that. Did yeah. It, again, did it help? Was it, you know, the um, scratch that itch that you've been trying to scratch? The leading up to it, I started to get a little nervous, but I just assumed that was because I was engaging in massive life change. Like I was going to like, any surgery, right? Right. Yeah. So like I was, my voice had dropped and I could like, there are women who have voices as low as mine. Like that's not totally out of the, out of the question, but surgery was permanent. Like every, like there's no going back and, and having things be the same. And so I think just the gravity of it started to hit me. But after I like, after surgery, when I like saw my chest for the first time, I just remembered having this like sinking feeling of like, oh, this is not what I was hoping it would be. Like this was supposed to be like soul level care and soul level satisfaction. And this is just, this is just on the surface. Like this is just trying to modify my body to deal with a soul level heartache. And so from there, like I saw my dysphoria shift to like non-gendered parts of my body. So like my arms, my legs, my stomach. And I realized that like, I, it wasn't just like a hatred of my gender and a discomfort in my gender that I was processing through. It was a discomfort in who I was as a person. Like it wasn't just like, I don't like being a woman. It was like, I don't like being me. I, I don't like who I am and I don't like be who I am around other people and I don't like being stuck alone with myself yeah. so one thing I've, when I've, as I've heard you share your story one thing I really appreciate is you constantly emphasize that this is your story you don't want to make your story prescriptive or even descriptive of yeah. all the other stories I mm-hmm. really appreciate that How, so in your story um just kind of re, I guess reiterate it, maybe draw out something you just said about you felt like you were um, you needed soul care mm-hmm. and you were addressing it with the kind of physical or more surfacey things. Can you yeah maybe elaborate on what, what was the kind of soul care you were really needing through all this? As I well as I begin like after surgery I saw my behavior beginning to spiral so like I. Um, like I just saw myself like obsessively exercising and obsessively watching what I was eating, like trying to like obtain this perfect body. And so like when I look back and I'm like, what, like what was my soul longing for? And I, I feel like just the rest of knowing that I was okay as I was, that there was delight in me for sheerly existing, not that, that didn't have to be attained through any sort of like perfectionism or like trying to control things or, but like Heather, Heather, Heather is okay. Like Heather is good. Heather is wonderful. And no amount of trying to like destroy the identity of Heather and create a new one is going to shift the fact that like my soul, like I like, even though I was living as Jamie, I can't erase the past as Heather and there's still this part of me that just really needed to know that like this part of my past, this person that I really didn't like, like she was okay. Hmm. And like, she, like, there's just like this little girl Heather that like, when I look back and think about it, there's this little girl Heather who just like is looking for love and like looking to be cared for and looking to be nurtured. Hmm. And as an adult, like I was dealing with those feelings 
through transitioning, through obsessively exercising and drinking and all of these things. But at the end of the day, it was like this tired, lonely, really hurt little girl who just like needed love. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so was it like two, two years later you decided, or no, it wasn't just you decided yeah. God was really truly leading you mm-hmm. to re-identify as Heather. Can you tell us about that mm-hmm. experience? Yeah. So when I, so it was actually pretty shortly after having top surgery. So I had top surgery February of 2017. Mm-hmm. And then it was that May that God started like interrupting things again. Mm-hmm. So after surgery and just the like full body dysphoria, not just gender dysphoria, like that prompted me to start looking back to like what God had, just like what God was saying. So, because the answer that I had gotten from like my friends just from school or like my non-Christian friends, I guess, was that like transitioning would satisfy me and that that would alleviate, like, cause it really is the only like solution for people struggling with gender dysphoria. Like the church doesn't really have a comparable option Um, and I tried that and it didn't work. And so I was like, I guess I'll go back to church. (laughs) So I, I, so I emailed some churches and, um, I was very direct with them. I just said, I'm a trans guy. I want to be part of the children's ministry, worship team and a life group. And like, if you're not okay with that, just please tell me now, because I don't want to get six months down the road and have you realize that I'm trans and get kicked out. So there's this one church in Ann Arbor that was just awesome. Like they were really upfront with me about what they believed. They said like most people in our church believe that if you're born a female, like you should identify as a woman, but like, we're all like, we're all just like in need of Jesus. And so welcome to our family. Like Hmm. you, even if like we disagree, like you still have value, like you still have insight and Mm -hmm. gifts from the Holy spirit that like, we want to learn from. So like, come like, let us learn from you. And like, hopefully you can learn from us too. Um, and then at the same time I was looking, just like looking online, trying to find resources about like what it meant to be a man and woman. Um, and I found this ministry that, um, was describing like the core desires of a woman's heart. And one of them was to be delighted in. Mm -hmm. And that just hit my heart. Like, so deeply because it was like oh my gosh like yes that is what I'm looking for and all of this like I just want to know that like I'm loved like it sounds so simple and yet like it's not like it is it's so simple and yet it's so messy and we live in a broken world and um and I realized that like I identified so much with what they define a poor desire of a woman's heart to be like maybe I need to start rethinking through like my gender um and I, in that time, um, like I had plans, like I got in the scholarship to law school and I had plans to go attend, um, that fall. And I was starting to learn how to like hear God's voice again. And I felt like he said to turn down the scholarship. I was like, that's crazy. God, like, this is like a full ride to law school. Like that, I don't think you understand what you're doing, <laughs> but I knew that I was hearing from God. And so I turned down the scholarship and the next day God asked me a few questions. Like he asked me, like, why are you settling for your brokenness? And I mean, even just specifically relating to gender, I was like that. I just thought like, I have been operating out of a place of woundedness. Like my femininity viewing it as wounded. Like I just shoved it to the corner. Like, yeah, I don't have to look at it or deal with it, but like, it's also causing me to like, just to engage the world out of this place of feeling like 
there's part of me that's defective and this is all covering that up. Mm-hmm. And then he asked me like, don't you know that I offer wholeness? And I was just honest with him. I was like, God, no, I don't. So like, will you please prove it to me? Mm-hmm. And I think as Christians, like it's really easy to feel shame when we say like, God, no, I don't actually believe that you say the yeah. things that you believe, but the ability to be honest with him in that, like for like, just change the trajectory of what my heart was willing to like receive. Um, God's not afraid of our doubts. <laughs> right? Like, he, like, he's so confident in who he is yeah. that, like, our doubts, like, I, yeah, like, he just, I feel like if he, he, like, wants to give us, and he has given us such a big picture, but, like, when he's not, like, angry at us when we doubt, it's like, oh, like, yeah. oh, Heather, like, here you go again. Like, yeah. don't you know that I love you? Like, I do, so I'm going to show you again. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Do you, can you help us make sense of... Like, in the last 10 years, there's been just such a massive increase, especially among teenage females, mm-hmm. either wrestling with their gender identity or, you know, identifying as male or, or maybe, another, you know, an alternative yeah. gender identity. I mean, the, and it's interesting because it's, it's largely females. Like, mm-hmm. typically, males would be slightly higher on mm-hmm. the gender dysphoria scale. But then the last 10 years, there's been, like, a hockey stick rise in females. Mm-hmm. Do you, do, have you thought of that or help us make sense of why that may be? Is there something in the culture with femininity that's confusing people? Or, I don't know. Um. I I would have to think about it more, too. But my initial... Like, I think part of it is... There's... There's always been more flexibility with femininity mm. in some ways. Like, because of like toxic masculinity like men have to make a much more significant coming out story to like identify as trans or even as gay because like there's so much more like it's has to be so much more intentional whereas like we uh, our culture has for a long time accepted that of course a woman wants to be more masculine like we all we prize masculinity above femininity and so like it makes sense to us that like and it's more accepting to us that like women want to like take a step up whereas men coming out are taking mm. a step down because of the in- imbalance the yeah. hierarchy with the gen- oh wow that's yeah so yeah. so i think just i feel like there's been more flexibility there anyway my initial response is that like there's just more access to vocabulary to name it as gender dysphoria okay. or to name like that pushback against stereotypes that like there's more there's there's more ability to not be in secret about it. Um, but I think our culture has always been one that's been set up of like, of course women want to be like men. Or even the idea of like, to, if you're a tomboy, yep. that's not that negative. Yeah. Uh, but to be a sissy boy or whatever, yep. whatever the male equivalent, that, that is, it's very negative, right? Yeah. So there is, like you said, there is more flexibility within mm-hmm. gender expression with, mm-hmm. with females. Um, a couple more questions. Sure. Uh, like I could talk to you forever, but, um, what would you say to maybe parents who have a child who, or teenager who's wrestling with mm-hmm. their gender identity? Maybe they actually have like really severe dysphoria or maybe they're just, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, but just more just confused, like genuinely yeah. confused about who they are. Mm-hmm. What help would you give to parents who are trying to parent their child through yeah. that? A lot of the parents that I've met with, I think initially believe that it's something that they've done that's caused their child to experience dysphoria. Like, did we raise them too strictly? Were we not strict enough? Like, did we give bad images about masculinity and femininity? And so first and foremost, I just like hope that parents listening to this can just like ease off that, ease that pressure off themselves. Like 
there's so much that we don't know about what causes gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. Like, is it nurture versus nature? Is it biological? Is it like having such strong stereotypes in the culture? It's probably a combination of all of the above. And so like easing off that pressure and then choosing to ask good questions without trying to fix your child's gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. Like when I was really starting to talk about it and feel it more like I was in my twenties at the time. So it's different than having younger kids, but I wish people didn't focus so much on the solution, but focused more on just understanding my experience. So like, what is it like, what is your gender dysphoria like? Like what things bring it on more? What things help you kind of, what things help like make you feel more relaxed, like help ease it? Like, what does it, um, like, is it really loud or is it like a constant humdrum noise in the background? Just like trying to get a feel for what my experience was. Mm-hmm. Cause you can't walk with people through things until you have an understanding of what it's like. That's so true. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And what about, um, I guess more broadly to the church, um, mm-hmm. how would you like to see the church improve and how it engages specifically the gender transgender conversation and also, number two, what would it look like for a church to cultivate, I'll say, healthy spaces for people to work through yeah. their gender identity? Yeah, I think for churches, like, it has to start at the top. Like, so it's going to be different for every church, but, like, the leadership has to begin engaging this conversation as a team first and, like, understanding, like, are like, choosing the act, like, it's an active choice to choose to defend, like, LGBT individuals in their church. Mm-hmm. Like, one thing that made me feel really safe in my church back in Ann Arbor was they were willing to lose, like, straight, have, like, heterosexual congruence over my, like, letting me be part of the church. Mm-hmm. Because they knew, like, the they're going to have no trouble finding a new church. But, like, you as an LGBT individual you were going to have a nightmare time finding a church that's going to love you. Wow. So they prioritized my spiritual well-being, knowing, not saying I'm more important, but knowing that like the resources for me are far fewer. And so like they prioritized that, but that was a choice from like the like that the leadership made of like we're going to make this a priority. Okay. Um, and then that trickled into like just the heart posture of the congregation too. And even I think too, like even just knowing, like how are we talking about gender in the really subtle ways too? Like are like men's and women's times or like youth group events, like are the men going and like eating wings and playing sports and like watching, I don't know, like action movies and are the women like drinking tea and crafting? <laughs> like, of course I want to be like, what, like yeah. playing sports, but somehow that misaligned with what the church was saying women need to be like. So it was very it was very boxed in, in my experience. Like women do this and this is how women connect with God. Men do this and this is how men connect with God. But God looks at us as individuals. Like no two women are the same. So I like would love churches to begin like having this heart posture of like, okay, what does Heather need to connect with God? Like what does Preston need to connect with God? Like as a man or as a woman, but like as like masculinity in like your version of masculinity or femininity in my version. Because that might be like, being outside, going in nature, playing sports, that could be crafting. Crafting's great, but like to have those blanket statements over an entire gender is really suffocating. It's almost like you implicitly moralize a certain stereotype. Yeah. And even, let's just say 70%, let's just say 80% women 
would rather be crafting, and I don't think that's true actually, but yeah. would rather be crafting than eating wings and playing, you know, dodgeball or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that, what does that do to the other 20 or 30%? Right. Like there's some, and it's not just like, oh, they, they feel like they're not part of the majority. They, they actually begin to question, right? Mm-hmm. The very essence of who they are yeah. as a woman. Like mm-hmm. I, am, I am not honoring God and my womanhood because I don't like these things yeah. that apparently define what it means to be a woman. Yeah. And like, even thinking about like, whether it is only 1%, like God still goes after, mm-hmm. leaves the 99 to go after the one. And like, I want the church to like leave the 99 who love like these more stereotypical masculine and feminine things for the one person, like one who like needs to know specifically that it's okay that you don't like these things. Your value is, and your, your femininity does not reside in like your preferences in like the length of your hair, but it resides in the fact that like God calls you a daughter and that's what matters. All of the preferences and stuff like God has given those to you to make you unique and to make yeah. you special because like someone needs your unique giftings mm-hmm. somewhere, sometime, like those are going to like be used for the kingdom. Yeah. So good. Heather, thanks so much for being on my YouTube channel. Do you have any final words for our audience as they continue to think through this really important discussion? I mean, I just would love to encourage everyone, like don't be afraid to ask questions, like to engage people in where they are. Like, the things that made me feel the most loved were people just asking, wanting to get to know my experience. Like, awesome. and that, like, you can never go wrong with that. That's so good. So good. Well, thanks so much for being on, and yeah. we will see you next time on the show.